Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you speak for our good so that we might know and enjoy you forever. Father, please help us now to focus our hearts and minds to hear your word and to be changed by it. Father, please help me to speak clearly and faithfully as I should and that in my weakness uh, I would proclaim the truth of the glory of Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be honoured in the preaching and hearing of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think teaching religion to children is one of the greatest evils in our world. Uh, That was the response I got after sharing that I'm a youth pastor with a guy that I'd just met at a party. Uh, Or consider a woman who works in in an office in the city was surprised to see on the staff notice board a letter addressed to her, signed by her colleagues, requesting, demanding that she stop talking about Jesus and spreading her offensive religion in the workplace. Pressure, persecution, rejection... Mockery of Christians is on the rise in Australia, but not just Australia. Uh, Many of you would have seen the ABC's report of the Chinese government currently forcing Christians, Bible-believing churches, to conform to the ideas and values of communist state or be shut down. Pastors have been arrested, churches closed, as you can see in the picture, crosses burned, and the sale of Bibles removed from online stores. Trials and challenges for Christians have always been and will always be a feature of the Christian life. I know uh, from lots of you that this is your experience or has been, uh, but it's especially an increasing reality for our teenagers, especially those in state schools. Christians need to be prepared to face trials. They're normal And in fact, they're to be expected. 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the context and setting for the letter of James and is the focus of the opening section. So as we begin this series, let's get acquainted with the book of James. Uh, there There are four Jameses in the New Testament. And this letter is written by the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. We read in Mark 6 that Jesus had four brothers, one of whom is James, and at least two sisters. And we also know that James wasn't initially a believer of Jesus during his earthly ministry. John 7 verse 5 says, Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, as someone with a brother, I can tell you that's not surprising. The worship of a sibling is generally something we try to avoid. However, it all changes for James when uh, he meets the risen Jesus. The resurrection changes it all. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that James had his own resurrection appearing, to which he would then go on to rise, become one of the most well-known Christians in the early church, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he actually plays a pretty prominent role in the book of Acts. We then further know that James, from sources outside of the Bible, went on to be martyred. He was stoned to death by the Jews for refusing to renounce his commitment to the Lord Jesus somewhere in the early 60s AD. 
And Paul uh, describes James in Galatians 2 as an apostle, but here in James, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly puts himself in the humble service of God. Notice that he equates with his half-brother Jesus. But the language of servant actually still carries with it a notion of authority. A servant speaks for and represents his master. And so with great authority, James writes to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, the literal 12 tribes of Israel, they were long gone at this point. And so this address probably suggests that James was writing to predominantly Jewish Christians. But clearly all Christians are in mind because, as we see in 1 Peter, uh, the church is often understood in the New Testament to be the fulfillment of the true Israel. So this is a book for us. And James tells us that the Christians he's writing to are scattered or dispersed among the nations. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr is stoned to death. We're told that great persecution broke out against the church, forcing Christians to flee far and wide. And so in that context, this well-known leader of the early church writes out of great pastoral concern for these scattered, persecuted believers, telling them how to respond to this situation. And the letter of James is really quite unique. Uh, This brother of Jesus relies heavily on the teaching of Jesus with several metaphors, illustrations that Jesus himself used. He also relies quite heavily on the book of Proverbs. James has even been described as the wisdom or Proverbs of the New Testament. He strings together a range of what you might want to call mini-sermons, addressing different topics from speech to wisdom, from money to favoritism. But very unlike the past decades, sorry, past months that we've had in the book of Hebrews, uh, and distinct from lots of Paul's letters, you won't find James unpacking big themes of Jesus' death and resurrection. You won't find heavy treatment of forgiveness or atonement or justification. James's audience is well acquainted with the teaching of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Their problem isn't knowledge. Their problem is putting their faith into action. James is a massively practical book with a clear purpose. He's writing to encourage believers to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Christians must be all in, undivided in their loyalty and obedience. So this really is a letter for us. After months in Hebrews unpacking Jesus' work as the great high priest, the better Melchizedek, who brought a better covenant through a better sacrifice by better blood, James is now going to ask and challenge us to consider whether that truth has now infiltrated all of our lives. And as he opens his letter, he skips all the formalities of a thanksgiving or prayer and he addresses their key situation by calling them how to, to, to respond to trials and to do so with true perspective. And his answer is quite surprising. Trials are to be seen as an opportunity for joy. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what are the trials that James is talking about? 
Well, the term is used in the New Testament two distinct ways. Firstly, for internal struggle, such as the battle for sin that goes on in our minds and desires, but also external struggles, such as persecution or affliction caused by others. And I think James probably has both in mind in his letter. From the content of James, we can see that believers are being persecuted for their faith. James 2 verse 6, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James, I think, for trials, it's primarily about persecution of your faith, but clearly there's a bigger picture. He says these are trials of many kinds. And we see this in his letter. He addresses conflict between believers as they fight in the church in chapter 4. There's poverty and social issues in chapter 2. Trials can even take the form of our regular struggle in this fallen world of sickness, such as in James 5. Trials are the regular struggles and challenges that put pressure on our faith. And James is eager to set their thinking straight. Because in James, we see that as they feel this pressure, it's leading not only do they turn on each other, but they are becoming worldly or even abandoning their faith in James 5. Faithfulness to Jesus will include many trials. So we need to hear what James says. We saw it not just in 1 Peter 4, but Jesus himself says in John 16 that in this life, Christians will have trouble. Paul promises to Timothy that anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so how we respond to them, how we think about them is of vital importance. And so James commands here that we adopt a certain attitude towards trial, which is uniquely Christian. Consider them pure joy. But how can that be? Why joy to these uncomfortable trials? Well, notice that James actually presumes that this is something his readers already understand. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is actually a very common theme in the New Testament uh, from different authors. Romans 5, Paul says, Christians boast in their suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Again, Peter in chapter 1, in all this you greatly rejoice, he's talking about their Christian hope there, you rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hardship and trial is God's pathway to grow and mature us. All of these passages have in common that God uses conflict, difficulty, trial to deepen our commitment to God. Notice none of the authors go into detail of exactly how that happens, but they want us to be clear that God is providentially in control and working for the good of a believer in a trial. And because of that, we must consider it pure joy to face trials. And so the joy is not so much in the suffering itself as if mockery or rejection or isolation becomes fun, but in what the trial achieves. Verse 4. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God wants mature believers. Or perhaps better, as the ESV translate, perfect. Trials refine our godliness. They perfect our character to be more like Jesus. Jesus himself says, Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the same word. Trials are God's means to change us, how we think, how we speak, how we live and serve. And it's true, isn't it? That no one has ever become more godly by sitting at home on the couch reflecting on how comfortable and cruisy their life is. Uh, This past week I was away at a a camp for ministers and their families. Uh, And part of the camp was a workshop discussing how to respond and deal with conflict in the church. And for a solid hour I heard almost 40 ministers pour out the grief that they and their families had gone through as they were attacked, undermined, insulted, and even threatened. Story after story of grief, hurt, pain, and tears. But despite the genuine sense of hurt and struggle, there was an overwhelmingly positive focus amongst these pastors. As they reflected and shared on how these conflicts had really hurt and challenged them, They then went on to talk about how this trial had exposed their own sin, made them become more prayerful, made them ask for forgiveness, make them offer forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, to bear with one another in love. Story after story of how churches and families are closer and better because of it. And I actually find this true for myself. Even when something as mundane as a cold or worse, a severe case of the man flu, my actual my prayer life goes through the roof as I ask God to make me well. And yet as I do that, I realize how prone to self-reliance I am, as I neither pray that God would keep me healthy when I'm well, nor do I thank him for the health I enjoy. God graciously uses trials to strip away our sinful self-sufficiency or anything else we might be relying on for our joy and satisfaction in order to bring us back to himself. And that is kind. As C.S. Lewis famously said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. As we embrace our inability and weakness and frailty, we then see our dependence on God and cast ourselves upon him completely, which is good. So joy in trial really is the confidence and contentment that God has the situation in hand and that we can trust him and that we can obey him. I actually think Paul models this beautifully in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Then chapter 6, Through glory and dishonor, bad report, good report, we're genuine, yet regarded as, as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. 
start to know what you're going through, whether it's health, conflict with someone else, rejection, mockery, whether family or friends, the loss of friends perhaps, unemployment, long-term battle or a new struggle. James is calling you to see it as pure joy, for it is an opportunity to cling to Jesus, to be determined to trust him and live his way. And so I wonder tonight if your view of God is actually big enough to have joy in your trials. Because it is a big call. Trials are real, painful, costly. And I think James knows this. He says if we're going to have true perspective of joy in trials, we must pray. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Just as trials are diverse, how God will grow and shape us will be diverse too. So we must ask God for wisdom to respond to the trial rightly. And wisdom in the Bible is so much more than just knowledge or intellect. As we heard in the Proverbs reading, the beginning, the foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. Wisdom is about living in light of reality of who God is, that he rules the world, that he's holy and just, worthy of every aspect of our life, our worship and devotion. And wisdom is seen. James makes this clear in chapter 3, verse 13. Wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Biblical wisdom is not simply knowledge, but moral and seen in action. And prayer, therefore, is essential in our response to trials in order for us to have joy. We must ask God for wisdom, the ability to trust him and live a godly life, whatever the trial is. And why wouldn't we do that when James says, God gives generously without finding fault? When you turn to God, he doesn't bring up your past failure. He doesn't say to you, where was this prayer three weeks ago before it got this bad? God doesn't say to you, why would I answer that prayer? It's your fault that we're here. No, no, just as Jesus taught in Matthew 7, God is a loving father who loves to give good gifts to those who ask him. We must pray. But just as God gives generously, James warns that we must never take him lightly. Verse 6, when we ask, we must believe and not doubt. Now, this is an idea I think that's confused a lot of Christians for a long time. Is James saying here that when we pray, we can't doubt? That is, we have to be absolutely certain that it's the right thing to pray for and that God will absolutely give it. And if we pray and don't receive what we want, it therefore must be because it's our fault and we doubt. I don't think so. The doubt here that James is talking about is not so much about intellectual certainty, but about loyalty. He says in verse 8 that the one who doubts is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Uh, as these believers that James writes to, they face trials. One of their responses has been to compromise on their faith and divide their loyalty. The world puts pressure on, so they just become like the world in order to fit in. 
James calls them double-minded. It's a great word. It literally means to be two-souled, or perhaps what we might call being two-faced. It's the person who says they're a Christian, maybe even shows up at church, but is a completely different person the rest of the time. It's the Christian who's trying to have a foot in the Jesus camp, but a foot in the world. It's the Christian who wants to compartmentalize their life, giving some to Jesus, but the rest is for them. And it's especially the Christian who wants blessing from God, but still to rule their own life. James describes them as the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. It's actually a beautiful image of inconsistency. The wave of the sea never has the same form. You look at it, you then look away, even just for a moment, and it's changed appearance completely. And James is saying that's what these Christians are like. It's a central concern of his letter. There is no fence-sitting for Christianity. There is no part-time Christian. We don't pick and choose what parts of Jesus' word to obey. Christians must be all in, undivided in their focus, loyalty, and obedience. And to those who are divided, James warns that person, you should expect nothing from God. But as he gives that warning, he's actually urging us to give up our divided loyalty. So ask yourself, are you all in? Are you compromising on your loyalty to Jesus by seeking to control or dictate what aspects of your life he rules? Is Jesus Lord over your speech and money just as much as he is your church attendance? Are you consistent in your faith that whether it's with your family or housemates, online or at work, with your friends or with your family, are you fully devoted and better yet, would they say that you are? That's the kind of people we should be, says James. But as we ask God for wisdom to respond rightly to trials, James finishes by showing us that this will actually change things every day. In verses 9 to 11, he contrasts believers in two different situations. You have the believer in humble circumstances, that is that they're poor, and you've got a rich believer. The poor believer is to take pride or more literally boast in their high position, while the rich believer is told to boast in their humiliation. And there's a really cool play on words. The lowly is to boast in their height, while the high is to boast in their lowliness. But what does that mean? I think James is saying that whether you're rich or poor, your boast, that is what you celebrate and hold dear, and better yet, what you are known for by others, is not your worldly status, but your Christian identity. The poor believer is not to dwell on their low social standing or poverty, but boast in their high status. They're a child of God. They're seated in heaven with Christ himself, where their citizenship will be forever, in God's presence where there's no death or tears or suffering. That's their reality. But so too the rich believer. Rather than delight in their wealth or social standing from their money, they boast in their humiliation. That is, despite their wealth, they are known for a humble, joyful dependence on Jesus. 
Worldly standing is of little value to the believer who has the perspective of all eternity. Verse 11. The sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business. James is making very clear here that if we are going to respond rightly to trials, if we're going to consider them pure joy, it'll never happen by accident. Each day must be viewed of ourselves and our world from the perspective and reality that comes from God's word. I actually think James's audience would have got this right away. Verse 11 is alluding to Isaiah chapter 40, where the quote goes on to say, Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. God's word grounds us in reality and points us above all to Jesus. Jesus who saved us by his blood, dying in our place to offer us his own righteousness, perfect standing before God, both now and forever. Because just as James was moved from sceptic to martyr, it was meeting the risen Jesus that changed everything. So whether you're promoted at work or suddenly laid off, whether you're struggling to make ends meet or buying your second investment property, your boast what you celebrate, what others know that you value and care about must be your Christian status and joy in Jesus. And responding to trials with joy can only happen when that is your daily perspective, grounded in God's word, focused on the gospel, who Jesus is and who you are in him. I think James is very clear. He's got Jeremiah 9 in mind. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And clearly James is still talking about trials in verses 9 to 11 because as he concludes in verse 12, he puts trials again in the context of eternity. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, James is alluding here to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And in in that teaching, Jesus is saying that there's a complete reversal of values in the God's kingdom, where what we hold dear is not what the world does, but what our king does. And so he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. And James is now trying to help us unpack this and apply it. But more than that, as we persevere in trials with joy, as God perfects our character to be more like Jesus, as we pray for wisdom and boast in our Christian identity, we are assured that when Jesus returns, there is reward. We have a certain future. The one who faithfully endures trials will receive the crown of life. This is a sure promise of eternity from the one who endured trial even to the point of a violent death. 
but rose again in victory as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is nothing outside his control and care as we live and wait for him. So how are you responding to trials? Whether it's financial or health, physical, mental, conflict with others, rejection from others because of your faith? Now I imagine some of you are sitting there quite comfortably thinking, I don't have any trials at the moment. Well, are you ready for them? Are you ready for them by daily praying for wisdom and the daily boast, not in your worldly status, but in your Christian identity? I hope it stands out to you that in this section, James actually makes no attempt to convince you to live this way. There's no extended explanation or defense of God's character or power or grace. He doesn't try and draw you back to the cross to motivate you to do it. Because as James calls us to respond to trials with pure joy, and as he challenges us over the next 10 weeks to be undivided in our loyalty and obedience, he's saying to us that this is the logical response of knowing Christ. In James chapter 2, verse 1, he says to them, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember, the issue in James is not whether they know enough, but whether Jesus has transformed every aspect of their lives. And so as we go through this wonderful book, the application is never simply try harder to look Christian. This is not moralism or trying to be religious. This is the all-in devotion which is logical when you know Christ. Jesus, who is the Lord of glory, who laid down his life to spare us God's just anger, the one who was crucified yet now risen and speaks for our good. And so if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, James is not telling you to try harder or look more Christian, but to look to Jesus. Jesus, who is so glorious and so transforms our identity that even trials are under his sovereign care and can be met with pure joy. But if you do know Jesus, if you've put your trust in him and now are sure that you're welcome in God's presence for all eternity, let's respond to trials with pure joy. For we know and serve a God who used the evil actions of his enemies as they nailed his son to the cross to achieve his purpose, the salvation of many. Joy is our logical response because we know him and he is at work to conform us to the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need your wisdom to consider trials pure joy. Please teach us to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, faithful, obedient, no matter what circumstances or pressure we might face. And please have mercy to grow our vision of how glorious Jesus is 
and grant that we would live each day from the perspective of who he is and who we are in him as we eagerly await for his return. For we ask this for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.